Hi, I'm Peter Beinart. I'm a non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and I'm very lucky to be joined today by uh, someone whose writing I've admired for a very long time and has uh, I've learned who I've learned from tremendously, uh, Akiva Eldar, who's a columnist for Al Monitor's Israel Pulse and was formerly a senior columnist and editorial writer for Haaretz and is the co-author with Edith Zertal of the really important book, Lords of the Land, which explains the history of the Israeli settlement enterprise. Um, and um, Akiva, I thought maybe we would start by asking you to explain a little bit the the politics around the Netanyahu uh, indictment in Israel, how it's being received by Israelis, and what that tells us about Israeli political culture more generally. Hi, Peter. It's a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm honored. I also follow you, uh, and I miss you in Haaretz. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it looks like uh, an enigma that uh, you, if you look at the polls, you see that the Likud headed by Netanyahu is still uh, ahead of everyone else, ahead of Lapid, let alone the Labour Party, uh, Gabay. Uh, and if there were elections today, Netanyahu would be elected. I mean, with one hand tied to his back. Um, but at the same time, the majority of the Israelis, like 70% or even more, trust the police. That, and, and they don't believe Netanyahu that he's innocent. And you're asking yourself, how can it be that uh, you think that this man is a criminal? According to what the police is saying, that uh, he's a bon vivant, he's uh, and a very cheap for he's willing to sell himself for cigars and champagnes, um, and at the same time you want him to be your leader. And uh, what I wrote today in, in a monitor, my answer is that the Israeli public has learned for many years, for the last fifty years that to take much bigger presence without even asking permission, and uh, uh, not from billionaires like uh, Netanyahu did, from businessmen, but from poor shepherds, people who live in caves, the Palestinians. We take the land, we take the water, the infrastructure, without uh, giving them anything in return. At least Netanyahu gave something to those people, the businessmen, to, to Milchen, according to the police. He gave them some, some benefits. They, they earned something for it. The Palestinians, what do they earn? And what the, the Israeli public uh, sees is that it doesn't come with a price tag, what they're doing. So it, it doesn't really bother them. That, so, so what's the big deal? So Bibi is a good leader. Uh, he is protecting us from Iran. He's protecting us from the international terrorism. He's, he's a good father. He's a good husband, actually. Uh, poor Bibi uh, has a problematic wife at home, and he still he doesn't get rid of her. So uh, I think this is part of the answer. Interesting. Um, I want to ask more about um, <clears throat> what's happening vis-a-vis the Palestinians, but just to stay on the, the Netanyahu politics a little bit, are you suggesting that because the the polling is, uh, suggests that most Israelis would re-elect Netanyahu, that you think that he will survive this scandal? Um, I don't think so. Uh, the question is, um, what will come first? Whether the partners from the coalition like Kahlon or 
maybe even Lieberman, uh, will sense that uh, he's becoming history, that uh, it's a lost case, that uh, he's on his way to, to prison. And they wouldn't like to identify with him and uh, to have anything to do with him and to, to disengage from him. And they will call for elections or maybe even his friend, because it seems that they start smelling his blood. Uh, forgive me for <laughs> this metaphor. Mm. Uh, I mean, political blood. Uh, or there will be, I don't see it right now, but um, the, the Israeli public, like they took to the streets, if you remember in 2011 mm. in the Rothschild uh, Boulevard, yes. uh, calling for, you know, uh, a better quality of life. And he said life is more important than quality of life and all this rubbish. And uh, there will be enough energy coming from the street that uh, will impose on him uh, to go home. Uh, according to the Israeli law, uh, paradoxically, if he was a minister that would be indicted, I think the indictment will come soon. And that will be from uh, the attorney general, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. the attorney general has to decide now. Uh, if he was a minister he would, or, or a mayor, he would have to leave. But as prime minister, uh, the, the law allows him to stay because if he resigns, it means that the whole government resigns. If he's just a minister, uh, the government doesn't have to, to resign, of course. So um, I, I believe that he will be indicted. And the question is, when will it happen and what will happen until then? There, there are people, maybe it's too cynical but that believe that uh, he will try to change the agenda by starting a war with Syria in the north or with the Palestinian. He's just waiting to get uh, a good reason, uh, an excuse to do this, um, to divert the attention. Um, and this will give him legitimacy to stay in power. But so what you're saying is that legally, he cannot be forced from power legally. It will essentially have to be a political decision by the people around him in the government. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, uh, the attorney general doesn't have the power. He has the power to indict him, but he doesn't have the power to uh, fire him. So he could stay theoretically as prime minister even as he's indicted and then there is a court case that that where he where which goes forward. Yeah, actually, uh, he can, and that's what he said. That even because he feels that he's innocent, mm. that he will spend half of his days sitting in court mm. and the other half of his day running the country, mm. which seems uh, a little crazy. I would say even. For your president. <laughs> so, um, so the, and you talked about Lieberman and, and Kachman. So these are people who are not in Likud, but they are in the coalition government. So yes. why would there be an advantage to them politically to bring down the government? I mean, they don't think that they are going to, do they think either one of them, they think they might emerge from an election as prime minister? Uh, first of all, Bennett believes so. Mm. And secondly, you know, even in the Israeli NRA, mm -hmm. you know, we have NRA also, National Religious Association. <laughs> okay, that, yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, 
uh, even they have some norms. Mm. And uh, they, if you go to their shuls uh, on Shabbat, mm. they don't really feel comfortable with a leader that uh, takes cigars and champagnes and 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 uh, jewelry for his wife uh, and is a kind of a bon vivant and escapist. They have values. These people, or at least they want their neighbors to believe. So <laughs> it's it's be, what Bibi is doing is not done in according to their values, to their culture. Mm. It's not it's not Jewish. It's 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 not. Uh, uh, what they want their children to do. Mm. So uh, uh, they don't. I think that at a certain point, they will not want to associate with him. If Peter, if they had right now, some somebody uh, who can convince them uh, that he could win elections. Okay, like Bibi can do in the polls. Let's say take. Uh, Israel Katz, okay, the Minister of Transportation, mm-hmm. who is also the Minister of Intelligence, and he he is uh, talking about running against Netanyahu. Mm-hmm. If uh, the polls would show that uh, he can bring as many uh, votes as Netanyahu, I think that they they don't like Netanyahu. They just they believe that they, they are right now they are riding a tiger. And you mean they? they you they mean you mean the national religion? Uh, will turn them to a stake if he can. Mm-hmm. So if the let's so if the government is dissolved, um, theoretically the government could dissolve to go to elections, and Netanyahu could still remain the head of the Likud party, right? There's also would have to be a, a struggle within Likud to determine whether he would remain the leader. Yes, uh, and uh, he will be challenged. And so he, he will be challenged because. Uh, you know, it, it's accumulating. Every day you hear uh, more people around him are arrested. Almost everyone around him is arrested. He's a former spokesperson. He's uh, director general of the ministry. Uh, and it's getting closer and closer to him. I, I would say, Peter, that if he was not the prime minister, mm. he would have been arrested now. Mm. So tell me a little bit about the potential other, you mentioned Yisrael Katz, the, the potential candidates who could take over Likud, uh, what do you think their chances are and what they represent? Um, yeah, in, in the Likud, it, it uh, would be uh, Israel Katz and um, maybe Gidon Saar, mm-hmm. who uh, is talking about it openly, that uh, he wants to come back and... And I wouldn't be surprised if Bennett will try to merge with the Likud, like if you remember, Lieberman did. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. he disengaged, mm. uh, that Bennett will try to take over. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, you know, at the end of the day, the settlers will call the shots because they, have, they are the strongest, they have the uh, majority in the Likud center because they are a block, and they vote as, uh, according to what their rabbis say. And uh, they, uh, whoever will offer them a better deal, they will support him. Mm. So and he... uh, whoever will, uh, uh, has a better relationship with uh, this constituency can be the next prime minister. So is there any significant ideological difference between, between Yisrael Katz and Gidon Saar or or Naftali Bennett, or basically would it all be, would it be the same as Netanyahu? Would it be a, a shift? 
No, there, there are nuances, but basically uh, they all don't believe in uh, a Palestinian state living next to Israel. They don't really uh, believe that Israel should stop the uh, settlement project. Uh, they supported annexation of uh, settlements. Um, they also support Netanyahu on on the uh, deal with Iran. Uh, they are very small. Um, if if you you ask yourself whether we will be well, that peace has better chances with another leader from the right, my answer is no. And what are what are the possibilities that someone from outside of Likud could win an election? Uh, Lapid or or Gabay from the Labour Party or some or somebody else. Uh, you see, the, the question is whether uh, even if Lapid gets more votes than the Likud, whoever will lead the Likud next time, it's not enough. Mm-hmm. Because it, we're talking about the two blocks. Right. What he will need is 61 votes in order uh, to preempt the Likud from, or, or to uh, convince the president to offer him to have the first chance and first round of forming a government. And if you look at the polls, uh, even if uh, they, you uh, count in the Arab party, it's touch and go. But uh, I'm not sure if the the Arab party would support, because look, the, the Likud, the uh, Lapid has got, uh, according to the last poll, 24 seats. The Labour has got 14 to 15 and merits Seven. That's it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Now, uh, Gabay told me that if he will have, if he will be able to prevent the Likud from forming a government, the Orthodox will join him. So what he needs is 61 together with the Arabs, because they have to convince their constituency, the, the Orthodox parties, why they are not going with the right, because their heart, they're out of their constituency is in the, is with the right. Mm. So uh, I don't see how they get the 61. And Lapid would have trouble going to a coalition with the Orthodox, right? Because hasn't he made his name as, as, as a critic of, of, of all the benefits they get? No, he doesn't have a problem now with the Orthodox. Actually, he was pandering to the Orthodox. He went to the Kotel with the Talit, and uh, he he changed his agenda completely. I see. I see. Uh, yeah, um, his his wife is uh, uh, doing uh, you know uh, lighting candles every Friday. He uh, he moved uh, to the other side because not because he believes in God, but because he believes in being a prime minister. Hmm. And in terms of uh, the, the, the issue of the Palestinians, is there any, is there any difference between Lapid and um, Gabay, the, the, head of, of, the head of labor? Do they represent anything, anything different from one another? And would they re- represent a significant shift from Netanyahu? Yeah, I believe they do. I, I, uh, first of all, I know that uh, uh, last year Lapid gave a talk to the... Uh, a Spiegel uh, group, you know, they meet in uh, uh, every every year, and now it's uh, in Hungary, and I think in Budapest. Uh, and he gave a talk. The people from the left were very impressed with him. Hmm. Uh, 
uh, he spoke in support of the Arab Peace Initiative, and he wants to have regional peace, and he doesn't want to control the Palestinians. Um, they uh, really realize that time is running against us. If you read Abigail's piece in Aretz, Abigail, who worked for Shimon Peres, uh, and he spent many hours with uh, Peres and Netanyahu, and what he says is Netanyahu believes that time is on our side. Mm -hmm. He's not bothered with demography, mm -hmm. and he believes that uh, we have to wait until the Palestinians will come to terms with the Jewish existence in mm -hmm. Israel. Mm -hmm. He doesn't, uh, actually, what he said is that um, he feels the same about peace now and annexation. Netanyahu, he doesn't want to rock the boat. Mm -hmm. He mm -hmm. believes that uh, with time, uh, time is on our side, with time, uh, maybe one day when the Messiah comes or whatever. So w what we need is resilience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and his middle name is status quo. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I know that Gabay and Lapid don't believe that time is on our side, that we need to take an initiative. And whether it will be unilateral or bilateral or trilateral, they uh, don't believe in sitting back and waiting until the Messiah will come. Um, and you mentioned earlier the, the potential of a war in the, with Syria, um, uh, in the war in the north. You Tell us a little bit about about what's what's happening there. Why there seems to be this increasing, uh, you know, conflict between Israel and Iran in Syria, and, and what the debate is like about that in Israel today. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I would uh, like to uh, tell our audience that because I'm sure that most of them know nothing about it, that a uh, few days after. President Trump made his Jerusalem statement. There was a, a special emergency meeting of the OIC, the organization of the uh, Islamic organization, 57 countries. And uh, they, among other things that uh, they, they made uh, in their resolution, they uh, reaffirmed the Arab Peace Initiative that offers Israel peace and normalization, okay, for going back to the 67 lines, and later on, they agreed on swap. And guess how Rouhani, who was there, how did he vote? He voted in favor, huh. okay? And he was then criticized by the uh, radical uh, Ayatollahs, hmm. Valayati and others. Hmm. But... Uh, he's on record mm. voting in favor of the RPC for the first time. Mm. So uh, what, what Netanyahu uh, is doing is uh, like for many years the United States, like Ronald Reagan did, and, and the Republicans, and, and Trump is doing with the Muslims, is uh, if you don't have an enemy, you invent one. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't take normalization for an answer. You don't take yes for an answer. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, if the, the Iranians were not there, Netanyahu would have invented them mm -hmm. because he needs an enemy. It's like Trump needs an enemy, the, the Muslims. 
because uh, Russia is, uh, as far as I know, is a friend. Mm-hmm. Not just a friend, is a supporter. Uh, and uh, so Netanyahu needs it. And the, I think that it would be uh, possible to reach some settlement with Iran if Israel would have accepted the Arab Peace Initiative. It would be, Iran would feel isolated because uh, we need to remember they are not Arabs and they are not Sunnis. Mm-hmm. They are double minority. And Netanyahu doesn't make an, any effort to isolate Iran. I mean, according to his perception, to his philosophy, he should have isolated them and put them to the test. Now, the, the Iranians uh, want to isolate Israel in the Middle East. Okay, so they are supporting Hezbollah, they support Hamas, and uh, I, I wrote a piece, I said, the next war may come at the same time, simultaneously, because as we saw in the Second Lebanon War, it started with Gilad Shalit and the, the incident in Gaza, mm-hmm. and a few days later in Lebanon, and now Iran is everywhere. So uh, we may find ourselves with uh, a kind of deterioration from one front to the other. In, at the same time, it can come from three different fronts. Luckily, we have the sea on the west, so it will not come <laughs> from the west. Um, and, and is your sense that, you know, how, um, how much of an appetite or a willingness to, to, I mean, Netanyahu has the reputation as someone who's actually, as you say, a status quo guy, and compared to Omer, is actually cautious, not only cautious about making peace, but cautious about starting wars. Yes. Um, do you see any reason to believe that he or people around him are actually are would be willing to um to to start that military conflict get into it? Um, you know, if people are desperate, if he feels that he's standing on top of a cliff and he's about to be thrown down uh, to all the way to jail, mm-hmm. then uh, he may do anything. You will be able, like you will be a Samson. Take uh, take us with him, uh, and do something that is completely unreasonable. Uh, and, but in this case, it, it sounds ridiculous or, or, or crazy. The uh, responsible adult may turn out to be Lieberman. Mm. That will stop him, mm. because Lieberman. After all, he is a cynical, pragmatic politician mm-hmm. and smart. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it sounds really crazy that uh, I am betting on him that he will save us. Mm. And you but, have... oh, go ahead. but there are still, unlike here in Washington, where the checks and balances are not working properly mm-hmm. with with your Congress. In Israel, there are still checks and balances. For instance, the Israeli media, as you see with the corruption, mm-hmm. the Israeli media uh, is playing a major role. Mm-hmm. And the, the Knesset is still, there are some reasonable people, and in the government. Uh, so uh, I don't think that Netanyahu can, uh, at the end of the day, if uh, push comes to shove, and it's a matter of... Uh, his political survivor, his life, political life, and our death in a war, I think that he will, he will be uh, stopped before he takes us there. Hmm. 
And do you have a sense among for Hamas, for instance, whether Hamas um, is in the is in a mode where it's more willing to take a risk, um, or or you think that Hamas would also would be cautious? Um, it's uh, when you talk about Hamas, uh, we think about Gaza mm-hmm. first of all, and. Uh, Children are starving in Gaza. After what uh, Trump did with UNRWA, it's getting worse. Mm. Uh, there is really, you know, the unemployment is uh, close to 70% now. And there is lack of food and, and drugs and uh, electricity. So I, I don't see how the Hamas will be able, even if they want to, to control if one million People will start walking to the fence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and, and uh, uh, there is the the uh, the American uh, administration is doing the opposite. What is our interest? I know, and and I think you read it in the papers that Netanyahu didn't want the United States to cut the budget mm-hmm. of UNRWA. Mm-hmm. APEC mm-hmm. didn't want it. Mm-hmm. They still don't don't want it. And I think that this is. This is a humanitarian, it has nothing to do with politics. Mm -hmm. This is a humanitarian disaster and a humanitarian crime. It's crime against humanity. Nothing less than this. Um, And what what about the role that, um, what's your sense of what role David Friedman, the U.S. ambassador, is is playing? How influential is he? Uh, How how is he perceived in Israel? Um... You know, uh, when when you say Israel, um, you mean Akiva Elda? Or... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, b- both, I guess. I mean, obviously, I imagine he's more popular on the right than he is on the left. But of I mean, course, um, you know, we already we are, we have a two state solution. Uh-huh. At least two people. Uh, well, the I, I can tell you, uh, Dan Shapiro was a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. But he was pandering to the uh, Israeli government mm-hmm. and to the Israeli right, mm-hmm. and he got them, you know, the, the message that we can get away with everything. So the Israelis can I just stop you? What, was that because I mean, was that because he he felt that Obama was uh, unpopular in Israel and he had to make Obama more popular, or that he? I, I, I've been. I have to say, as someone who doesn't know Dan Shapiro very well, but has followed his career a little bit, I've been. Surprised, um, just looking at his public statements since he became, since he left the ambassadorship, yeah. how how much he sounds like Dennis Ross, um, and um, so I was interested in you maybe explaining that a little bit. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, since uh, you know Dan Shapiro is Shomer Kashrut and Shomer Shabbat, and uh, uh, what at the end of the day probably uh, he thinks about uh, his uh, uh, friends in shul that he meets on Friday, and uh, he is surrounded with, he works for the INSS, and most of the people there, like, uh, and the the, uh, chairman of the INSS uh, is uh, an advisor to this government, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Yadlin. So uh, Dan Shapiro behaves like uh, many people in the Israeli elite, who decided that we can't beat them, so we'll join them. Hmm. And uh, uh, I think that he, he betrays his own values. Because, uh, as you say, I know Dan since uh, he was working uh, for Lee Hamilton and then for Dan Feinstein. Hmm. 
and uh, he convinced Diane Feinstein to vote in '95 against the Jerusalem bill. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's uh, maybe uh, we get uh, to you. We need to get used to the fact that people do what's good for them first of all, which is called opportunism. And uh, I, I even give Dennis Ross the credit that uh, he knows better than what he offers. Um, so uh, what David Friedman is doing, I think he's doing us a big favor, because um, he is uh, turning down the curtain from the American policy. When the, the president, uh, the White House, denied that uh, he spoke to Netanyahu about annexation, he denied what Bibi said, Friedman actually said, no, Bibi was not lying, and mm-hmm. I believe him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, what you see is what you get. Actually, he is telling us the truth. Mm-hmm. This is what the American policy is. So it's important that we know that. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe the Israeli left needs to uh, finally get used to the idea that the United States of America will not save Israel from itself. And what Friedman is saying, this should be a wake-up call to all of us, that uh, the American dream, which means that the dream that America will uh, save us from becoming an apartheid state, because I don't believe in a binational state. Israel will never give away its hegemony. So it's going to be either a Palestinian state or apartheid. So uh, I think that it, it, uh, it's important to remind us that we are dealing with uh, an administration. And this was, you know, we were hoping for eight years that Obama will put an end to this right. and nothing happened. So what do you expect? That Trump will do what Obama and Clinton refused to do? And the, the last president that did it was uh, Bush Sr. Right. They said, you, can, you cannot have it both ways. It's either settlements or the support of the United States. Well, so uh, I, I, uh, I appreciate what Friedman is doing. You, you mentioned the, the binational state idea. There's, been, there's some discussion you know, in the United States about how Palestinian opinion is maybe moving in that direction. What is the debate on the Israeli left about about uh, about a binational state, about the idea of looking beyond the two-state solution. Has there been any any shift on the Israeli left on, on that question? Um, not really. You have uh, to talk separately about the Israeli Zionist left and the non-Zionist left. Right, right. So uh, I mentioned, if, yeah. If you, if you look at uh, the people in Meretz, mm-hmm. uh, they keep warning us mm-hmm. from a binational state. Mm-hmm. Okay, they, they don't see the binational state as a solution. It's rather a problem mm. than a solution. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, what, what happens is that it's become more realistic. It becomes uh, uh, the, 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 the fear is becoming more tangible. You can touch it. It's mm-hmm. happening right now. So uh, th- there is no real debate. There are people, yeah, more people who are saying that the, the horses already left. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
the soul, that mm-hmm. uh, we need to find something else. Mm-hmm. Like you can hear more people talking about confederation, mm-hmm. uh, about unilateralism. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, in, the, in the Zionist left, you don't uh, have uh, people who are considered influential that talk about a binational state as an option of one man, one vote. The, the, you know, the, the Meretz platform talks about the state of all its citizens and uh, a Jewish state at the same time. The state of the Jews, actually. They don't see the paradox. They, they think that you can, uh, you can be the state that everybody who lives there can identify with, but have uh, nature, Jewish values and the, the Jewish tradition and the, the, the uh, self-determination of, of the, uh, as, a, as a Jewish state. And do you think you can have both of those things? Uh, and I think that uh, until 67, uh, we were doing quite well. When uh, we closed down the uh, um, military administration, mm-hmm. the military government in Israel, in 66, in, you mean the military of, of Israel's Palestinian citizens? Uh-huh. Yeah. You know that I served there in, when I was in the army. Ah, no, I, didn't. Uh, I was the, one of the last ones to lock the door. Mm. Uh, and I think that uh, we started learning how to live with the Israeli Arabs, that they are not enemies. And then came the 67 disaster and uh, took us back. Uh, and I think that it's a challenge, uh, Peter. It's not easy, but... Uh, it's interesting. We could, if uh, with a fine tuning and with goodwill and without paranoia and without feeling that uh, we are the chosen people, but we are normal people and every, every human being was chosen uh, and has, uh, needs to have the uh, same opportunities, then I, I think that uh, if we didn't have the Six Days War um, and we're still in the Seven Days War, I think that we could meet this challenge. Well, how, well, uh, it, it's not easy. How would Israel... You have a... It's, my, my sense is that, you know, there are a lot of Palestinian citizens of Israel who basically feel, look, if, if I'm in a country which has um, a, a, a Magin David on the flag and a mm-hmm. Nefesh Yehudi in the national anthem and it has an immigration policy which means Jews can become citizens on day one and basically it's very difficult for anyone else to become an Israeli citizen... Then I'm a second. I'm a second class citizen. So I, I. How do you? What kind of concessions? How does? How would Israel have to evolve in order? And what would you be prepared to rethink in order to make Israel's Palestinian citizens inside the Green Line feel um, like full citizens? And what ex- concessions do you think they should need to make to 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 the Jewish need for self determination? Mm-hmm. I think that the key word is uh, to respect each other. They can respect our flag. They don't have uh, to sing the anthem. But the the anthem, it's a Jewish state. Uh, There is no other Jewish state in the world. And uh, uh, if I... uh, That's the reason I live there, because uh, because I feel this is my language, this is my culture, this is my values, and I am not orthodox, as you know. Mm. Um... But uh, the the Palestinians, uh, like uh, in the United States, um, children go to school and they in some schools they pray, 
and they uh, celebrate Christmas, and they, they celebrate Hanukkah. Uh, you know, my my two granddaughter, one has already graduated uh, bilingual school in, in an Arab village. Mm. Okay, and uh, she has many Arab friends, and she even they went to sleep over in in Umm al-Fakhim. Mm. And they, they're fluent in Arabic. I wish I was mm. that fluent. Uh, they don't uh, really care whether the girlfriends are Arabs or Jews, <laughs> but at the same time, uh, they uh, make sure that their father will build a sukkah every year. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, uh, and they know that they're Jewish. Mm-hmm. So um, the flag has the Magen David because. It is still a Jewish state, and the majority are Jews. So they don't have to salute the flag, and they don't have to uh, put the flag on their house. Uh, but at the same time, um, I don't think that... Um, and actually, in, in those schools, they also celebrate uh, Ramadan. And uh, we, we can allow them also to have their Memorial Day, the Nakba Day. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is wrong. When they, you take their right okay, to remember their Holocaust and what they consider to be their Holocaust. It's not the same, of course, but for them, this is their uh, ultimate Holocaust. They lost their country. So the key word is to respect, and, uh, and we don't do this. We keep reminding them that they are losers. Nobody wants to be reminded that he's a loser. And I, I, I believe that uh, uh, we were doing quite well going in the right direction, and uh, we made a U-turn. We made them feel, and the other thing, Peter, is, of course, uh, I was demonstrating, uh, let my people go, shalachet ami. Mm-hmm against the Russians, mm-hmm. because we felt solidarity mm. with our brothers and sisters in the Soviet Union. Mm. So why can't they feel solidarity with their brothers and sisters in Nablus and in Hebron? So as long as, as we are holding those people under occupation, and uh, we are turning their life to, to hell, why should they like us? Did we like the Soviets when... They put uh, our people in prison. Oh, so, uh, you know, the problem of the Israelis, and many, not, maybe not only the Israelis, is that we are not able anymore to put ourselves in the shoes of the Palestinians in their place. And see how it looks from there. They don't, people don't speak Arabic. People don't visit Palestinian. The only Palestinian they know is the guy from Umm al-Fakhim who uh, serves them hummus in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, unfortunately, this is, a, this is a problem that many that Americans share as well, very much in, 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 in Americans' inability to understand um, right. why. Well, I, I think it's universal. Yeah. Um, well, on that on somewhat bleak note, um, uh, thank you, Akiva, so much for taking the time. Um, to, to, to talk. I always learn so much from, from listening to you and reading you, and um, I hope we'll get the chance to do this again. I'm sure. We, I'm always available in Israel for you, Peter. I appreciate what you're doing, and I was so happy that uh, you are now together 
with the foundation. I don't know if you know that, but without the foundation, my book, the, with, uh, I wrote with Edith Zatau, yeah. could never materialize. Ah, I didn't know that. Well, I'm, I'm... Yeah, yeah, they sponsored it, and they sponsored the uh, translation to English. Ah, well, I'm very glad they did, since, uh, since it's a really important book, and I would recommend it to, to anyone listening. Thank you, Peter, and uh, talk to you again. Be well. Bye-bye.